In the 1950s, Camberwell, under legendary coach Charlie Morley, played attacking, short-passing hockey with Indian-style sticks that was years ahead of its time. The club appeared in almost every single grand final between 1945 and 1960. In the 1980s, as you've heard in previous episodes, Camberwell, with Waverley Hockey Club, dominated the competition, sharing alternate premierships for almost the entire decade. In the 1970s, though, the club faltered. A generation of players retired, our junior base was poor, and in 1972, we were relegated from the first division. The man we're about to meet, life member, past president, and patron of the club, is credited as being a key figure in preventing a slide into mediocrity and establishing the foundations of the strengths and culture we enjoy today. Welcome to the Camberwell Hockey Podcast. This week, Max Harris joins the hosting team to present Colin Wandsborough, a club legend and pivotal figure in Australian hockey. Just a note, the audio quality on Max's side is not ideal in this episode, but the story is compelling and well worth a listen. Here's Max. G'day, I'm Max Harris and I'm here with patron of Camberwell Hockey Club, Colin Wandsborough, who also happens to be my grandpa. Colin has been involved as a player, coach, selector, president, life member, and now spectator at Camberwell for many years. Thanks for doing the podcast, Cole. Now I've promised to keep this under an hour for the listeners. Do you think we can manage that? I think I can manage that, but it'll be a difficult task. Well, first off, um, how did you come to be involved in hockey? And can you shed some light on Camberwell's early days? Well, I belonged to the first Camberwell Scouts uh, when I was 13, which was uh, 1949. And a friend at the Scouts asked me what I was doing the next morning. I, he said, if you're not doing anything else, come down and have a game of practice hockey. And I went down and I started playing junior hockey uh, in 1949 from that point on. And in those days, there was only under 16 age group for junior players. There was no other staggered goes like 10, under 10, 12 14. So from that moment on, I played three years of junior hockey till 1952 when I made my debut in the senior ranks and I played until 1990 in matches. I played Premier League with the equivalent of Premier League now between 1952 and 1965 and then I played in the lower grades and did some coaching then and uh, eventually finished up playing veterans hockey until 1990. So did anyone else in your family play hockey? Was there any influence from parents or friends? Well, the main influence I had, I didn't realise when I started, was that the Camberwell Club was coached by Charlie Morley, who was an institution in hockey. He, at that time, he was the Camberwell coach, he was the Victorian coach, and he was the Australian coach. And so we happened to be settled in a club that had the Australian coach in charge. And I was extremely fortunate because he was a strict disciplinarian. He was ahead of his time with tactics. And Camberwell were the leading club, unbeknownst to me, in the Melbourne League. Camberwell, I think, had played in every grand final between 1945 and 1960. 
winning about half of them. And then we had to face up that we had only three junior teams and the talent fell away as people retired. And so the club then had to struggle somewhat into the 70s until for one year it was actually relegated from the top league in, I think, 1972. But we were able to retain our players, won the comp- that second division competition and reinstate into Premier League the following year. And ever since then, the club has gone from strength to strength. If you could maybe elaborate on some of the grades of hockey that you've played from Camberwell to Victoria and anything higher, um, and where you've found to have the most uh, success um, or enjoyment. Um, and specifically, can you share any memories of a 1950s playing group? When I played in 1952, I think the first time that I was involved in the final uh, in finals was 1955 when we played, and I played in in we played in three successful premiership teams uh, between 19 I think 1956, 1958, 1959, and they were wonderful occasions. But unlike in today's era, we celebrated our grand final win by having a cup of tea and cake at Charlie Morley's place that evening and we were home by 10 o'clock in bed. He was a strict um, teetotaler, I've, I've heard. He was. He was probably the, the equivalent in hockey to Harry Hopman in tennis um, and probably um, Jock McHale, and the great coach at Collingwood. He was a very influential player in the a person in the fact that of the of the Campbell team that I was involved with, people such as Mike Craig, uh, Rick Purser, uh, to name a couple, have gone on to, uh, to make, make major contributions to Victorian and even Australian hockey, all as a result of the training that they had under Charlie Moy. I think as far as other achievements by the Campbell club, I think the looking back on that. In those early days, we only had two junior teams, two under-16 teams, and that wasn't enough to feed in continuing uh, new talent. And so I think in today's era, there are something like 27 junior teams apart from minky hockey players, and so there's a continuing stream of people who are rising up through the ranks and the coaching is so highly organised and the administration of the club is so highly organised today that runs almost like a business, whereas in the old days it was quite different. Uh, Charlie Morley, went, uh, had, we had, and he had three senior teams. Charlie Morley only coached the top side. He would uh, actually insist on every player having clean polished boots and white laces before they took the ground, otherwise they wouldn't play. Almost had to have creases in your shorts before you could play. And he would ring up on Friday nights at 8 o'clock to make, sh- to make sure that we were all in bed asleep before our main match. Most of the time, I would be out at the pictures on Friday night with some of my friends and my mother would answer that I was fast asleep in bed. That's great. Can you touch on the Victorian teams you played in? I played in Victorian teams initially in under-21. It was called the Colts team. And the under-21 side did have a national championship. Each year, I was selected in 1954 when I was 18. Managed to actually hit a goal, which I mishit and trickled into the corner of the net and scored the first goal in my first match. We won't, we can't forget that one. Uh, I then captained the 
captain of the under-21 team to Perth in, in the following year in 1955, and in which case I met my bride-to-be on that particular trip. And so that was pretty memorable also. Uh, that was to Western Australia. The next year I captained the under-21 team to Hobart. And they played in Hobart, the national championships. That was, I think, in July or August. And in that year, 1956, was the Olympic Games. And that, was, that happened to be the first year that Australia actually played in an Olympic tournament. They had, didn't, had not participated prior to that. So there was great excitement as everybody wanted to be picked in the Australian team. Following the Colts under-21 tournament in July, I was chosen with one other person, John Purser, to play in the Victorian senior team, which uh, took place, I think, in October, from which that championship they picked the Australian team. So that was actually, I think, the first time that anybody in under-21s had actually played in the senior team. From that, we, the, I played in 1957 in Adelaide and 1958 in Perth again, on which occasion I became engaged to Jenny while, while we were over there in the trip. So the team, even though we got smashed 5-0 by West Australia in the first match with five pierced by brothers playing, uh, we still managed, the team still managed to celebrate my engagement later on. We finished second. We never, ever won, in my time, a national championship, but we came second a few times. Then I uh, had a slight break. I played for Victoria in some matches against a visiting Indian team in between, but I didn't uh, resume playing in the interstate champion, national championships back again until 1962, which was held in Adelaide. In 1963, was held in Melbourne, and from after that moment, I did not play any further interstate hockey. You must have had some talent then, um, but from what I've heard, you were quite a rough, bullish player. Um, could you maybe tell us how you would define your playing style? Well, I was very proud. I think in 19, despite what some people say, I did uh, win our best and fairest in the Melbourne competition in 1958. So that was uh, must have been done made some passes to the people that counted. Um, I I gave my all for on the field. I was a very determined player. I wasn't maybe the most skillful player in terms of stick work and those uh, particular aspects, but I was pretty good with my I think with my passing and my reading of the game, and I uh, was also very, very fortunate to play in a team that was full of very good players, and like Mike Craig and Rick Purser and John Purser and Alan Carnell and Bill Borman and Ron Legg, Ken Burkett, uh, Graham Wood. A few shout-outs there. And the oldies. Yeah. A few people went on to play for Australia. So we actually had, at one stage, I think seven or eight of the Campbell team were the formed the Victorian state team, so we practically were the, the dominant club for all those years. A lot of those players made you look good. They probably did. They probably did, or alternatively, I probably made them. Okay. Either way, now there is a story you've told me, and this is good for the uh, young ones. Can you tell me how you travelled to Western Australia for the uh, 
hockey tournaments. Yeah, we did. On the first trip we made in 1955 in the under-21s, the team could only afford the Victorian Hockey Association only sent a manager because of the cost and the we travelled by train. We left Melbourne on in the evening and we arrived in Perth three days later. It was a two-and-a-half-day train trip across the Nullarbor. We changed trains four times. Uh, the, we we travelled on four trains to make that journey. So it took two-and-a-half days to get there and I happened because the coach, there was no coach in the, of the team. Charlie Morley had coached prior to us leaving the Melbourne and once we set foot in the train, I also became, automatically became the captain coach of the team and we had coaching sessions in the mornings and the afternoons on board the train with a, um, uh, with a board and draft movement to check out all our tactics, etc. So for any young ones out there, I think that shines a, shines a bit of perspective on um, what people had to go through you know, 50 years ago. So it's a great story, Phil. So back to Camberwell, um, what roles have you held within Camberwell Hockey Club and how have you found the transition between each role? Well, I joined the committee, I think, in as a player, as, as a senior player, as I said before, I started in 1952. In 1960, I think I uh, was elected to a place on the committee of the club. Uh, Charlie Morley always insisted that uh, people made a contribution and in 1961, I became the club secretary and from that moment after that I became uh, a member of the committee constantly through until I think 1995. So I think I was on the committee for something like 35 years. Uh, in that transition now I have to say we went through tough times and a lot of work and we had a lot of negotiations with the council who were very cooperative. It was the Camberwell Council then prior to being becoming Burrumbarra. And we had a good relationship and we had to had the ground, went through a stage where we uh, arranged for the transformation of the Matlock Park ground from a what was originally a cinder ash surface to then a porous uh, red scoria gravel surface. And then in 1986, we laid the first AstroTurf pitch and I was had a, a very in, deep involvement in negotiating all of that building of that with the council and with the contractors uh, and with the other committee members too, but that was our major project. And at the same time, after the club had existed with a little corrugated iron shed on the western boundary of the club where, where the team shelters are now, we had a single shed there which uh, was all-inclusive. It had a toilet in the corner. It had uh, one shower next to the toilet. Sometimes the sprays mixed up with each other and it was men only because there were no female uh, facilities. So wives, mothers, girlfriends had to have big bladders and stay in the car and watch the match, but they couldn't use the facilities. So my other main achievement, I suppose, at the time was the overseeing of the commissioning of the first Pavilion in 1986 at the time when we laid the AstroTurf and we built a uh, fully-fledged pavilion there which had two changing rooms and two smaller rooms for selection and um, and property, which we promptly made into a social room and cafe and kiosk. And then subsequently in 1995, we 
uh, amalgamated the women's section of the club with the men's section and built uh, an additional, rebuilt the pavilion to accommodate the female teams in the in the club, the women's club, and it was all became one, and that was the that was the premises that existed until last year, two thousand and nineteen, when the new wonderful pavilion has been uh, newly constructed at, at Log Park. That's amazing to see because Camberwell is um, one of the biggest clubs in Australia. Um, huge um, pop, uh, membership population, I, I guess growth as well of the club. Yeah, it's amazing to see that the club wasn't as, well, amazing as it is now, I guess. Um, was there any time so, sort of through the 70s or 80s where the club was maybe really struggling financially or um, where there was dire straits, you'd say, for the club? We did go through a period when our playing power dropped and when, um, for that year when we were relegated we did find that some a lot of players had retired from playing and then the the interest dropped away and we realised that we had to do something to resurrect the club at that stage. We were on a shaky ground and we went through a pretty tough time but we one thing that I felt I was uh, helped was by co-opting Keith Thornton to become, to move into, uh, come out of retirement and uh, and take an active interest in the club. And he became president for, following the retirement of Rex Lind. And Keith steered the club up through the 70s and through the 80s. Uh, and we started building, deliberately building the, the youth section of the club. And by that time, we had... Under, under under 10, under 12, under 14, under 16 age groups. And we had a new crop of players, some of whom were uh, children of, of players of my era. And they eventually fl- came through the ranks of the juniors and we rebuilt the strength of the club. So it probably, uh, probably took most of the 70s to transform the club from, a, from, a, from what had been a power to a struggling club, and then it became set, it got back on its feet, and became a forerunner uh, into the in the Victorian Hockey Association. I might add, I say, that I think what has happened now with the over the last twenty years with the administration of the club is absolutely a source of great joy and comfort because the club has been has done more to help so many players of, of whatever ability. And now it is a wonderful club, from in- inclusive of juniors, seniors, veterans, male, female, whatever it is, and the facilities that are provided and the administration of the club, I've got nothing but praise because I think it is just a, a wonderful tribute to to now offer the opportunity in the, into the future. Perhaps the only regret is that we are limited to one particular playing surface down there, which uh, would have been nice to had we been successful in getting a, a greater area. Well, you couldn't do it all, Carl, but you did a lot. So next on, how um, have you seen the development um, of the veterans program? I know you've been heavily involved in its uh, beginnings. So, yeah, how did that arise and what involvement did you have? There was, a, there was a very important hockey carnival held, conducted every Easter at Albury, and that was quite famous. I, th- I think in one stage it was probably the biggest a hockey club 
participation in the world and with something like two, more than 200 teams playing. When I finished playing senior hockey in probably, probably around about the early 1970s, I, for about 10 years, I organised off my, it was just a, an initiative that I had, was prepared to take on. I got in touch with various players who had, uh, prominent players who had played hockey during my time and even after that, you know, people of the ilk of Des Piper and Chicken Howell and Robin Hodder, uh, to name a few, as apart from other Campbell players, and we, and of course, Alan Berry of, from Essendon and, and Ross Preen and various other people from that had played. And we called it the President's Eleven, and it was just one that I probably selected. I actually gathered, wrote to all these people and asked them if they would like to come back and just play as a, in a social manner. And so we had some of these previous prominent players played together in the President's Eleven until I think... I remember in 1979, it was the 25th anniversary of the Aubrey Carnival, and we had special shirts uh, printed for that occasion, and it became then known almost as, as, from that moment. It was, a, in a sense, it was a forerunner of veterans hockey because all these prominent people went back to their clubs and started recruiting other people who had played over many years. And, and Alan Berry and myself, in conjunction with Dennis Morgan, the Executive Director of Hockey in Victoria, we then uh, we were, we were involved at the Victorian administration level in those days and we thought that we were ready for a veterans competition to start. And that did start, I think, from memory, about 1978, 79, 80. And was there anything like that before? Nothing like that before. Yeah. And we did that. And from that, in 1980, it started the the... Trend had started also in the other states, and so in 1980, West Australia conducted the first Veterans National Championship, which we attended. We had 12 players only, including the manager of hockey in Victoria, Dennis Morgan, who'd been a rugby player, but we co-opted two or three West Australians to do the running for us, and we had a very good social time, including sailing down the Swan River after our match and having a few little... Stubbies. Now, now the veterans competition is highly organised in different age groups, and it's yes. become more serious. When it started, it was really a chance to have a second go at putting putting your boots on again and having a, a run with old friends on a in a much uh, in a happy environment. That's right. It's prolonged a lot of playing careers, people. So uh, it's been a brilliant initiative. From your perspective, how has the game itself? Um, I guess technically, how has it changed from a playing perspective and also from an administrative uh, viewpoint? Well, it has changed dramatically and for the better. When I played at the little top level, we played on mostly, certainly in Melbourne, on mostly on football grounds, often which might have had a, a fairly gluey turf wicket uh, in the middle of them, which made uh, pretty hard with a hockey ball. And we played on grass grounds. In, it was different in other states because in Western Australia we played a national championship on the Wacker and it was, I think, uh, either Cooch or Buffalo grass, but it was just a perfect surface like a bowling green and we'd never struck anything like that before. So we played in different conditions in Melbourne. So the, cha the changes that I've seen 
probably the most obvious one is going to an artificial turf surface, both at a sandfield surface at the club level and at the uh, proper uh, pure astroturf surfaces at the uh, higher levels. That, for a start, made the hockey much easier to play and you had to be more precise and more skillful. I think the, the, the fact that we were able to play on, on those surfaces, they also then brought in uh, two or three rules at the international hockey level. Firstly, to basically uh, cut out offside. Mm-hmm. It was very, very much stop and start and whistle happy when I played. It was a bit more like rugby. It, there was no flow to the game, uh, really, unless you, it, was, it was a tight contest. But with the, with the changes in the rules... They then amended the obstruction rule so that the player with the ball could turn without bulking his body, but he can, he can, it is almost like ballet dancing now compared to what it was before, um, and the obstruction rule stopped it. Also, uh, moving with the ball from a free hit changed. You, had, you couldn't do that. You had to roll the ball in from the sideline uh, and you didn't hit it. So, and certainly when you took a free hit, you were stationary when that happened. So now the changes of the game have been so progressive that it's turned into an exciting game, Um, basically no offside, no obstruction, the ball moves all the time, the player's player's individual skill level is a thousand times better than it was when I played. So it is just a delight to watch and it's exciting and I think they've done everything, which is pretty unusual sometimes, but that's from when... Real changes are made from the higher level without necessarily understanding the game, and I think they've done it properly, and it's certainly certainly helped enormously. So uh, it's all for the better. Equipment-wise, the players now have hockey sticks with you know hooks on the end, and some have holes in the stick. Um, all all range of different um, adjustments to the stick. Uh, now I've heard. Um, that you used to have razors on the end of your stick and you know, a titanium end to give people a shove in the ribs. Uh, can you confirm that? And and if not, what, what stick were you? I've never heard anything like never heard anything like that. That uh, that uh, I would use anything other than pure skill and artistry and <laughs> and, and body work. Um, sometimes the wind blew very strongly and blew people over when in my presence, but uh, that's only a it's only a mystery to me. The, incidentally, the sticks, hockey sticks available when I first played, they had they called the Indian type stick, which had a, a tight little hook like a shepherd's crook at the end, whereas the English type stick had a broad sweep curve um, and a longer a longer curve. It wasn't tight at all, and so you, the in, in, English stick was probably better to just hit the ball hard with when you're hitting off a cow pat. But uh, the Indian one was more, uh, more appropriate for uh, ball control, mm. and uh, and Charlie Morley had taught the Campbell team to use an Indian style game, which was short passing, good stick work, um, and looking ahead and making a series of passes that had a had a, a purpose in them. He, he he had certain set moves that he, he instructed, whereas most of the teams in those days just hit and hoped. So the hockey stick had a bit to do with it. But now, uh, with the improvisation, I think they made a fibreglass. It's a, some, a composite material. And 
they originally they were made with a mulberry head, a wooden stick, wooden head with a cane handle, which was spiced just like a cricket bat, and wound with string around that. Uh, it was it was suggested that some of the big fullbacks, some of each team had a major fullback in in my very early days, and it was suggested that they had their sticks at the bottom taped, and they thought that. There's some lead weights in the bottom of them, which helped them sometimes <laughs> hit the ball further and also make this dents in shins. Well, but I didn't have one. How did you then get involved in international hockey? Um, and what was it like travelling overseas as a technical officer and tournament director? And what changes have you seen from the administrative side? Well, that's pretty hard to answer that within the 40-minute period. But let me just say, my to get involved at international level, we had to be involved at national and state level. And in my case, when I was 21, I just uh, had finished a commerce degree, and I, but I hadn't actually worked in a proper accountant's office. And Charlie Morley suggested, or didn't suggest, he just told me that I had to become take over as treasurer of the Victorian Hockey Association. So, which I did in 1957, and I did that. And then, even through getting married and having young children, I still had to be work on the Victorian hockey finances for some time, which I did for something like six years. And I was involved on the administration, the main council of Victorian hockey. And uh, then that period had a had a gap as our family grew up, and then I. Resumed a position with the Victorian administration in mid 1970s, and I became a vice president of Victoria. And I was then became acted as president of Victorian Hockey from 1977, 78, 79, and then I I became Victoria's delegate to the Australian Hockey Association. So I attended hockey. Australia Council meetings, and I did that continuously until 1984 when I was then appointed Honorary Treasurer of the Australian Hockey Association, and I uh, worked with Harry Nedevine as president, Frank Yeen as president, and Peter Cohen as president in Australian hockey, and as president I was responsible for the finance committee of that, which included Don Argus and Bruce Morley and Tony Thornton, and as a result of being involved in Australian hockey, we ran successfully ran some international tournaments, which I was heavily involved in the organising committee of in 1982 and in 1990 in Melbourne, and meeting people from overseas. I was I was I think nominated in 1985 as a judge to participate as a federal at an international tournament as a as a what they call a judge, a member of the jury, um, and we went to Germany. And from that, it started from being a judge, a technical official, uh, then became uh, appointed as, as a, a technical a tournament director, and I was able to finish up being able to travel to most continents. So I officiated in Germany, Holland, Ireland, England, New Zealand, Malaysia. Do you have any memorable uh, stories from, from those times or, or locations? Yeah, well, going to Pakistan twice was uh, interesting. 
being in a country that was uh, where alcohol was forbidden, I remember in Pakistan, the entire Australian team managed to uh, smuggle through customs quite a, a bit of useful drinking material, uh, which was usually concealed in in innocent cartons of some sort, and it didn't matter very much because all the customs officials in Pakistan were either past hockey or cricket players, and they let all sports teams in anyway. So, yeah, we that was uh, we had it was, it was just such so, so interesting to see the, uh, the the difference in culture of all these different countries. But the one thing that was binding and bonding everybody together was their love of hockey. And they're all like a big hockey family. Wherever you go, I've made many, many friends in many countries and still in contact with quite a few. So that was a learning experience. And, of course, I had some technical duties in, uh, in a couple of tournaments in Australia as, as well. So uh, hockey's been very kind to me. And I think no matter the old saying is, no matter how much you put into it, you certainly get far more out of it. That's very true. Um plays have you loved watching and why in the modern game and also in the past? And who's been the greatest influence in your career? But we'll start with who you enjoyed watching the most. Well, probably it goes without saying the players I like watching most have been members of my family and my, and my grandchildren. But uh, apart from that, I've had the good fortune to see the great Rick Charlesworth play. I've seen and Terry Walsh and Jamie Dwyer. And, Many, many, many players that I can't do many to name here, but also greats that played for overseas teams. Some of the great players in Holland, like Tease Krauser and uh, Boverlander, who hit penalty corners. I think uh, Boverlander in Pakistan, in the World Cup in Pakistan, uh, when Holland played Pakistan in the grand final of that uh, tournament, they were supposed to be evenly matched and there was no score up until about five minutes before half-time, and then Holland awarded the penalty corner. Overlander moved up, smashed the ball in. Uh, two minutes later, Overlander got another penalty corner. The Pakistan goalkeeper went behind the net, right behind the goals to hide, <laughs> hide from him, and he scored again. And a minute after half-time, Overlander scored again. I think I don't think there's anybody in the goal mouth trying to defend and so the crowd all dispersed and Holland won easily. But apart from that, the wonderful players like such as Shabazz in Pakistan. Um, uh, the, uh, there was another wonderful captain of Pakistan who'd been captain and won gold medals. Um, and he, was, he was, became the manager of the team and became friend, very friendly with him. Um, I think even Sean Curley, who played as centre forward for England, was a, another great player. Uh, Germany had some wonderful players that uh, I was lucky to, to be able to witness. And, and of course, in Australia, as I said, Rick Charlesworth, um, Jamie Dwyer, uh, <coughs> Mark Hager, uh, so many, so many people. Charlie uh, Morley, automatically. Mike Craig has probably been the other one of the great influential players. Not only to me, but to hockey generally, he's made an enormous contribution, um, and, and probably had the most uh, effect on on me. Well, in in thinking intellectually about the game, and uh, and not only not only in how you deal in coaching and player development, but 
also in which way the game's heading and what, and how the club should be managed and put on a much more like a business type board of board of management rather than the old days when somebody's elected secretary and treasurer and property steward etc. Um, Mike's Mike's a deep thinker in the game and uh, I think probably there's, there's so many people in many ways that help but they they too Molly and and Craig would be too apart from. Uh, the other people like Alan Carnell and Bill Horman, et cetera, who have been friends. But I think um, in terms of the deeper involvement with the of the game, uh, Mike Craig was probably more concentrating on individual performance skills, individual skills and things. Charlie Morley was probably more a tactical coach and didn't worry so much about the, the personal skill levels as, as, as to the degree that Mike did. From someone who's seen nearly 67 years of hockey. Um, where do you see the game as it is now and how do you think it will change into the future? The changes to hockey have just have been dramatic in, in my lifetime. I simply can't see how hockey can, can improve on what it's doing now. I, it seems to keep on being faster and cleverer and people almost don't hit the ball now. It's mainly slap shots or pushes or whatever, but uh, it's all so quick and I just can't see anybody being the aerobic fitness of players now has, has so dramatically changed. They have to be in the play so much more than they ever were. I can't, I, I honestly can't foresee it getting any better unless it's played on virtual reality on a TV screen. <laughs> well, that might be the way. But the, the equipment has changed in my time and I don't see the, the change there. The, the surfaces have changed and the rules have changed mm. and the players' fitness has changed and the skill levels change. But I, I, it seems to me that that's almost at a peak. Yes. It's a great game to watch. Um, and, yeah, hopefully it gets more traction into the future. Um, now, lastly, we've just been a Hockey Australian Life membership. Uh, the last month. Um, that's the culmination of a lifetime work. Um, hockey, um, what does that mean to you? You can be as boastful as you want. Well, it did honestly come as a complete shock. I, I understand I'm deeply humbled and I'm very, very proud. I think that's a wonderful recognition uh, to me, but it really just reflects what other people have done for me. and I've. Tried to put a bit, put a bit back into the game. I, th I guess uh, when you think back, you do it because of you love doing it, and you get so much pleasure out of doing it that you don't expect any reward from it. And for somebody to recognise that I've made some contribution, I guess as my father once said to me, uh, "Just while you're on the world for a little while, just try and make it a better place than when you when you came to it." And hopefully, if that applies to hockey then uh, if I've made some contribution and other people can learn from that and gain from that and then get some enjoyment from it, then I'll be um, amply rewarded. I think uh, I regard it as a great honour and uh, uh, sort of sets the seal on probably 71 years of association with the game, which I love dearly. Great. And lastly, what would... Um... What would Campbell Hockey Club? What does Campbell Hockey Club mean to you? What you know, you've been involved um, so long. Um, there's so much history in the club. What 
Simply put, what is the Campbell Hockey Club has been so much part of my life and I've tried to influence all my family to be to take advantage of that and, and then get as much enjoyment out of it as I have. I joined in 1949. The club was formed in 1932. So without me realising it, it was only 17 years uh, in formation prior to me arriving. It's now 88 years old and coming up to its centenary. So that's a pretty amazing achievement for a sporting club to be in existence and continue on successfully for nearly 100 years. That is uh, quite an achievement and it's, it's been done through the efforts of hundreds and hundreds of people. There's so many that I can't name here, but uh, without that without the, that help and that volunteer contribution, and they do it too for the same reasons I've done it, for the love of it. And the Campbell Hockey Club has just been so important to me. As a, as a 13-year-old, I used to take the hockey stick to bed with me at night where other people took toys. So, And I haven't changed very much. <laughs> only for, only as, as a weapon now in case a burglar comes. <laughs> However, it's it's uh, given me great joy personally because I've seen my children um, get so much pleasure and enjoyment and satisfaction from it and they've all put put back into the game likewise from seeing the, the desire to do that. And now I've been uh, fortunate enough to see my grandchildren do that also, and I just hope that they get as much pleasure out of it as I've had because the bonding and the teamwork and and the camaraderie that exists, in a, especially in an amateur sport, uh, makes it uh, a great joy to be part of a team and to share the memories and the, the highs and the lows that you get through the game. So it's been very, very much a part of my life. And I should say finally that without any ado, I wouldn't have even been able to do anything like this without the help and support of my dearly beloved wife, Jenny, uh, who we met through hockey and she put up with me being being a hockey widow for many years until I then became a golf widower. So I do have tribute to her to have uh, hosted hockey meetings and been part of it. And we've travelled together and got uh, great pleasure uh, in, uh, in our hockey travel. So it's been the world to me.